This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue on in James with more grace. Resist, if the Lord wills, warning to the rich, and patience in suffering. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. The Lenten hymn, Come to Calvary's Holy Mountain. Few may realize that the imagery that is invoked there comes directly from the prophet Zechariah, from the latter part of his short prophecy in the Old Testament. What is his message? Why does he begin with a message of repentance? And what about his night visions? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to talk about the Old Testament prophet Zechariah and the season of Lent with Dr. Reed Lessing, author of the Concordia Commentary on Zechariah. Then it's part four of our series on classical Christian worship. Dr. Arthur Just will join us. He's written the book, Heaven on Earth, The Gifts of Christ in the Divine Service. Dr. Reed Lessing is professor of theology and ministry and director of the Center for Biblical Studies at Concordia University, St. Paul, Minnesota. He's author of the Concordia Commentary on Zechariah. Dr. Lessing, welcome. Good to be here, Todd. In the past, you have done Lenten preaching workshops based on the prophet Zechariah. Why does he fit so well into this season? Wonderful question. The book begins, chapter 1, 1 through 6, with a call to repentance. So it fits very tightly with the emphasis on Ash Wednesday and, of course, throughout the Lenten season. And then we get, especially to chapter three of all places, is one of the most Christological chapters in the whole Old Testament. And it talks about the Savior being a servant, a branch, and a stone. I'll talk more about that as we get into the interview. But especially chapters nine through 14. Many people have called those chapters the chapters of Holy Week, and uh, we'll get into some of those uh, specific verses along the way. So we certainly have Palm Sunday, (laughs) no uh, question about that in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. 9-11 talks about the blood of the covenant that sets prisoners free, which is a wonderful text for Monday, Thursday, Good Friday. We've got a wonderful text in chapter 12, verse 10, where God is the speaker here, saying, they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And then we get to chapter 14, where two times in verses 9 and 17, We have God reigning as king over the new Jerusalem, which certainly talks about victory and new life that we anticipate on every Easter of the year. So give us some historical context for uh, Zechariah's prophecies. Yeah, so Zechariah is going to be what we often call a post-exilic prophet. 
And I'll just give you some dates here so our listeners can kind of plug into what's going on. In October of 539 BC, uh, Cyrus II defeated the city of Babylon, really without a shot. He just uh, came in and the people welcomed him. That was specifically October 12th, 539 BC. So that was the changing of the guard, right? Babylon goes down, uh, Cyrus and the Persians go up. Cyrus and the Persians are going to be much more friendly to uh, Judahites. So Cyrus has an edict or a decree. We could read about it in Ezra chapter 1, 1 through 4. Essentially says to anyone still in Babylon who wants to go back to Judah, go ahead. I'm going to let you go, Cyrus says. And on top of that, he's willing to pay for Solomon's temple to be rebuilt. Of course, that was destroyed in August of 587 BC. So we have 539. Babylon is defeated. 538, Cyrus says, y'all can go home. And a number of them come home, led by one Shezbazar, and they begin building the altar which is a wonderful act of piety and theological conviction. If we have no altar, we have no means of grace, right? In terms, at least, of uh, sacrifices and blood atonement. So they begin that in 537 BC. And as many projects go along uh, the years, especially related to churches, I'm speaking specifically to pastors who might be listening to us, or lay people as well, let's have a building program in our church. And inevitably, most of the time, people get discouraged. Maybe all the money doesn't come through. Maybe the, the prices on the materials go up, whatever. But that's what happened to uh, these returning uh, exiles from Babylon in Judea. They started in 537 BC, and then they stopped. They just got discouraged. And Zechariah then comes along in 520 BC. So we need to understand 17 years of like no progress on this second temple. Zechariah comes along with Haggai, their ministries overlap, and through their prophetic words, the people start again. And they dedicate the temple then, the second temple, March 12, 515 BC. That gives a little idea of Zechariah's life and times and really the major challenge that he faced trying to encourage people to finish the building project. What do we know about the man himself? We do know that he was born in Babylon and that uh, he's a priestly prophet, that is to say, he's going to tap into books like Leviticus and the prophet Ezekiel, especially with his emphasis, obviously, on the rebuilt temple. Beyond that, we do have this phrase that Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 23, that Zechariah was a martyr. We don't know exactly for sure how all this happened, but Jesus makes it clear that Zechariah would be kind of the last Old Testament person to shed his blood for the faith. He, Jesus in Matthew 23 talks about from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. There are about 29 different Zacharias just in the Old Testament, but I think most of our listeners know we're talking about this Zechariah, the prophet who wrote the book. 
We would also want to note that uh, Zechariah is going to be a prophet that has read his Bible. Like nowhere else in the Old Testament, really, do we have so many allusions and quotes and words from prior texts. So we know that he meditated on Yahweh's word, and the Spirit then used that to inspire a, a wonderful book for us. What does the name mean, Zechariah? Yeah, Yahweh remembers. Zakar, of course, remember. And it's probably worth pointing out that in Hebrew, Zakar is not just a mental activity, but it also means you're going to do something. And of course, the diminutive Yah from Yahweh, hallelujah. So Yah, Yahweh remembers, which implies he's going to do something. And that he does. One of the greatest verses in the book is in chapter 4, verse 6. It's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So this God remembers his people. Uh, he sends his Holy Spirit to inspire them. Zechariah records the words, and through the first eight chapters in the book, we have this emphasis on the rebuilt temple. You mentioned a few verses. What are some other key verses in this prophecy? Yeah, I would say if I had to pick one verse that would encapsulate the entire 14-chapter book, it would be chapter 4, verse 10, where God asks the rhetorical question, who despises the day of small things? And of course, it, it is a day of small things as they're trying to rebuild this temple. Haggai talks about that in chapter two of his book, that people looked at the construction of the second temple. They said, this looks nothing like Solomon's temple in all its glory. So God asked this question, who despises the day of small things? And it's just, a, it's a wonderful tap into the theology of the cross, isn't it? In fact, <laughs> God is always working with small things, right? From a barren Sarah to state slaves in Egypt to Gideon, who says, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, I'm the least in my family. We could go all the way, obviously, this points to Jesus, who delighted in days of small things, five loaves and two fish and little children. And then the day of the ultimate small things, right? Which Zachariah has a lot to say about that. And that would be our Lord's uh, passion, death on Good Friday. So God is going to work through the small things, the small people, through the means of grace, through the theology of the cross, and this is how God's kingdom comes. So chapter 4, verse 10 would be huge to get a kind of a panorama of the book, because once the temple's rebuilt and we get into chapters 9 through 14, we're going to see Jesus being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We're going to see him riding in to Jerusalem on a donkey, and we are going to see him split open after his death with a, the Roman spear thrust. So the day of small things in the rebuilding of the temple really is going to funnel into chapters 9 through 14 and prepare us then for the suffering and the death of Jesus. How would you outline the book? So chapter 1, 1 through 6, as I said earlier, is a, a bit of a jolt. That is to say, as you read Haggai, 
he simply says, it's time to rebuild this temple. You have been waiting now for 17 years and kind of get off the couch and get to work. So Haggai's sole focus, okay, is the temple. And fair enough, right? That's great. But before Zechariah gets to his eight-night visions, beginning in 1-7, he has this call to repentance. In other words, the primary need of the people is not a rebuilt temple. It would be renewed hearts. So chapter 1, 1 to 6 is the foundation for everything in the book, a life of repentance. Chapter 1, verse 3, God says, return to me, I'll return to you. And in chapter 1, verse 6, the people return, they repent. And then, as I said, from 1-7 through the end of chapter 6, we have these eight-night visions, and all of them are going to speak into the need to rebuild this temple. Then we get to chapters 7 and 8, which are very clear in that the main focus of the rebuilt temple would be rebuilt lives, not only for these Judeans who are living in this Persian province called Yehud, but strikingly, almost amazingly, at the end of chapter 8, we have one of the greatest missional texts in the whole Old Testament. So the temple, if we could tap into Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. So that's that's uh, chapters 6 and 7, kind of the purpose of the temple, a renewed lives and, and to attract the nations to the incomparable and merciful God named Yahweh. And then we get to chapters 9 through 14, which, as I said earlier, the kind of the Holy Week grid that the evangelists in the New Testament are going to use to interpret and announce the gospel of Holy Week. Dr. Reed Lessing is our guest. We're talking about the Old Testament prophet Zechariah and the season of Lent. He says that Zechariah is a commentary, the first commentary, in fact, on the prophet Isaiah. We'll find out what he means by that next. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue on in James with more grace. Resist, if the Lord wills, warning to the rich, and patience in suffering. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. Where is God's mission? God's mission is everywhere. Yes, it's far away, but it's also very near. It's as near as your congregation in school, your neighborhood, your family and friends, even as near as your home. Wherever you are, God's mission is in that place. Through his mission, Christ is bringing forgiveness, life, and salvation to people everywhere, even here, right where you are. God's mission here. Learn more at lcms.org slash national mission. Sanctifying your exercise routine with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. Do you know a student at The Ohio State University or another college around Columbus? Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church supports LCMSU at Ohio State. We offer weekly on-campus Bible studies, regular Sunday lunches, and rides to church if you need them. 
Learn more about Ohio State's campus ministry and Zion Evangelical Lutheran Church at zionlcms.org. That's zionlcms.org. Memoria Press is a worldwide leader in the publishing of classical Christian education. We have everything you need for students in kindergarten through 12th grade, and our materials can be used in any classroom setting to suit your needs. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 to save $5 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the Old Testament prophet Zechariah and the season of Lent with Dr. Reed Lessing. He's authored the Concordia Commentary on Zechariah. So, Dr. Lessing, you say that Zechariah is the first commentary on the prophet Isaiah. What do you mean by that? Yeah. That, <laughs> so, I've written actually three books on Isaiah, two commentaries, and I really didn't know that Zechariah is the first commentary on Isaiah until I wrote a commentary on Zechariah. So you live and learn. I'm sure you find this out, that the longer you study the Bible and talk with people and read books, etc., you kind of go back on earlier things you've written or said or thought, and you'd say, wow, I've been enlightened. So that's what happened to me when I wrote the commentary on Zechariah. I thought, you know what? He is thoroughly knowledgeable of Isaiah's prophecy. And, and so what what he says, I'm just going to look now in uh, chapter 1 of Zechariah, for example, in verse 4, do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. So, so that idea of former prophets, and he's going to talk about these former prophets two or three more times in chapter one, one through six. These former prophets would be prophets like Amos. He's going to dial into Amos, Ezekiel, as I said, but specifically Isaiah, Isaiah. So let me give you a couple examples, all right? In Isaiah chapter four, verse two, the coming Messiah is called the Zemach, Zemach, which unfortunately is normally translated branch, branch. And a branch, of course, entails, you know, a tree and, and a tree that has the capacity to have a couple branches, right? But Samach actually is better understood as a shoot or a small little growth, all right? Luther, who wrote two commentaries on Zechariah, argues for this point as well, that Zamach in chapter 4, verse 2 of Isaiah is a shoot, just a, a tender little green sprout coming up, all right? Well, that's exactly what Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 is going to describe Jesus as, as a zamak, as, as not a branch, right? A, a branch has kind of capacity, but we're still talking about small things, <laughs> see? We're talking about a little sprout, sprout coming up from the ground. Uh, and then this is going to uh, be a commentary, this being Zechariah 6, verse 12, on Isaiah's great messianic prophecy in chapter 11, verse 1, where from the cut down stump of Jesse, there's going to be a nature, a nature, that's Isaiah's Hebrew, which again, it's, it's kind of a small little new growth. And then we get to chapter 53, verse 2, where the suffering servant is called a young plant coming up out of dry ground. 
Okay, so so we we've, we've established that Zechariah knows Isaiah's messianic prophecies concerning this zamak, this little shoot. But even more importantly, the way Zechariah is going to describe this coming Messiah in chapter 3, verse 9, he's also going to call him a servant servant. And within the context of chapter 3, 9, we'll, we'll look at that chapter a little bit more within this interview. But for now, we want to understand that the idea of servant in 3 verse 9 of Zechariah is going to tap into Isaiah's suffering servant songs in chapters 42, 49, 50, and then 52, 13 through 53, 12. And, and it's as though Zechariah is just giving us a little preview of coming attractions, because then, of course, in chapters 9 through 14, he's going to expand upon what this suffering servant of Isaiah is going to do for us and for our salvation. You've got to, some wonderful connections between the Zamak, the uh, shoot, and the suffering servant. Do we find any place in Scripture where Zechariah and Isaiah historically overlap with one another? And no, they don't. No, they don't. So he's uh, he has access to Isaiah at some point in his right, prophetic ministry. Right. That's interesting. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And as I said, it, these uh, uses of uh, the terms like former prophets and and the prophets that you're forefathers ignored. I'm just going back to some verses in chapter 1, 1 through 6. He's telling us kind of his hermeneutic, his interpretation. He's going to further the prophetic message, the former prophets, of course, being before the exile. Why does Zechariah begin with a call to repent? That's a wonderful question. And just to zero in a little bit more on what I had said earlier, that a building is only as good as its foundation, right? And the foundation of the new temple needs to be repentance and faith. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, right? So Zechariah wants to anchor people in a repentant, humble relationship with Yahweh before they start on the external building project that they have neglected for 17 years. You mentioned this earlier, but why is it not only important, but really imperative that that temple be built again? Right. So this is um, going back to Genesis chapter 3, right, where Yahweh's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That that verb that uh, Moses uses in Genesis chapter 3 is also used in 2 Samuel 7 to describe God walking among his people Israel by means of the tabernacle. So God, this God, the only God, the true God, he's, he's completely transcendent, right? Holy, 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 just to tap into a little bit more of Isaiah chapter 6 verse 3, but he's also imminent, right? Imminent. He walks in the garden of the cool of the day. He's, he's present in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle, of course, is going to be the blueprint for Solomon's temple. So this is where God 
dwells. This is where his glory is. This is where he delivers the gifts of the gospel. Without a temple, there's no priesthood, there's no sacrifices, there's no blood atonement, there's no presence of God in the midst of his people. So this would be of ultimate importance. And of course, there's any number of places in the New Testament where Jesus is going to either implicitly or explicitly refer to himself as the temple, but the the clearest would be in John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple, three days I will raise it. So the necessity of the, the temple in Zechariah's day could be compared to the necessity of the incarnation of the Son of God. God wants to be present with us. Walk us through these eight night visions that are found there in Zechariah, the first six chapters. Yeah, so it's a chiasm. That is to say, the first vision is going to be related with the last vision, etc. So if we're looking at this chiastic structure, we see a beautiful literary masterpiece. That is to say, the first vision is going to be universal, focused on Yahweh's omniscience. And so will the last vision in chapter six. Then we go to international in scope. That's the second vision, which pairs with the seventh vision. Then we go to national in scope. This would be third vision and sixth vision. But four and five then are at the heart of the chiasm. And this would be a typical of a Hebrew poetry, Hebrew narrative, in this case, Hebrew visions. It doesn't happen all that much. I don't want to overstate this, but a number of times the meat is in the middle, all right? The author is going to put the most important feature of whatever he's trying to say right in the middle. So what's in the middle of these eight visions? It would be what? It would be restoration of the temple's worship, all right? Because the Fourth vision is going to focus on the leaders, and so will the fifth vision. What's wonderful about this, just thinking in terms of word and sacrament ministry, is the fifth vision is going to focus upon Haggai and Zechariah. They're the two olive trees. You need the prophetic word. And then the fourth vision in chapter three is going to focus in on Joshua, uh, the high priest, at that point. So the middle is going to be where the, the word and sacrament are delivered. It's just amazing to um, rediscover the emphasis on that in Zechariah. Another point I'd want to make is that as he begins his first vision, he's going to begin at night, at night. This is what he says is 1-8, And then as we follow the visions through the last one in chapter six, the last vision is going to happen in the dawning of a new day. So it's a wonderful death and resurrection motif from darkness to light, from judgment to mercy. And uh, of course, we know biblical authors love to play with the idea of salvation coming early in the morning, going back to when God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt. So you have this movement from utter despair in the darkness in the first vision to the first beams of a new day in a chapter six, the last vision. 
And again, to just reiterate, the emphasis is going to be on the priest, Joshua, and the two prophetic leaders, Zechariah and Haggai, as demonstrated by the tight chiasm and the meat being in the middle. You're linked to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're discussing the season of Lent and the book of Zechariah with Dr. Reed Lessing, author of the Concordia Commentary on Zechariah. You can purchase this commentary on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Concordia Commentary on Zechariah. I guess that's why Chapter 3 is so important. It sits right at the nexus of that chiasm. We'll talk about it next. How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27. Join Lutherans for Life at the For Such a Time as This Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston, Texas. Enjoy the testimony and talents of Dove Award winning musician and adoptee Mark Schultz. Discover expert information and exciting opportunities, and experience the fellowship and celebration. The 2024 Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston. Find out more and register at lutheransforlife.org conferences. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial a podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Hey, young adults, are you finding it harder and harder to meet and connect with other Lutheran men and women? Join us at University Lutheran Church in Champaign, Illinois, on Saturday, April 6th for the Martin Plus Katie Conference. We'll talk about being men and women in Christ, meet new friends, get to know each other, and have fun. Register at martinpluskatie.org. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-P-L-U-S-K-A-T-I-E.org. Registration closes on Palm Sunday. Christ-centered, cross-focused, you're listening to Issues Etc. Ape men or humans? This is Ken Ham inviting you to bring the whole family to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. In the mid-1800s, workmen discovered some fossil bones in a cave, the first Neanderthals. Eventually, these people were given their own species name and treated as our more distant relatives, a dead-end branch on the evolutionary tree. But later research showed they wore makeup and jewellery, made tools, weapons and musical instruments, and even had children with so-called modern man. Neanderthals aren't closer to the apes than us. They were human, made in God's image, and descended from Adam just as we are. They're just 
aren't any ape men. All those supposed missing links, well, they're either mistakes, or they're apes, or they're just humans like us. Discover more about the truth of God's Word from the very first verse when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. There's more to learn at AnswersRadio.com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Dr. Reed Lessing is our guest. We're talking about the Old Testament prophet Zechariah and the season of Lent. So before the break, you were talking about the structure of those chapters 1 through 6, the night visions, and how the, the really important stuff is right there at the center of that X structure. So is that why Zechariah chapter 3 is so important? It really is. So we don't have this figure of Satan appearing very often in the Old Testament. We're probably all familiar with Job chapters 1 and 2. And then we have a bit of an obscure text at uh, uh, the end of First Chronicles chapter 21. But it's only in those two places, and then the third place in Zechariah, where we actually have the word Satan. Right, which simply means accuser, right? So in chapter three, Satan's going to do everything he can to keep the temple from rising again. So he's going to accuse Joshua, the high priest, not to be confused with, right? Joshua wrote the book of Joshua, right? And led Israel in the promised land. This is a different Joshua. But the accuser is going to accuse Satan in this vision that is a uh, courtroom vision. So Satan's the prosecuting attorney, and he tells Joshua that he has filthy garments. This is Zechariah 3, verse 3. The Hebrew here is more than just like a little sweat or uh, dirt on your fingernails. It means uh, vomit, excrement, sewer pollution covers Joshua. And that's because he was born in Babylon. Babylon being an unholy land. So how can an unholy priest dispense of the means of grace upon unholy people? So that's the way the vision begins with this accusation. But then there's intercession. Intercession. A number of times in the first six verses in chapter three, we have the Malach Yahweh, the Lord's messenger. Jesus in the Old Testament might sound strange, but certainly he's more than just a little bit active in the Old Testament. It's not like he's sitting on the sidelines waiting for the real game to begin. And so this uh, messenger of the Lord, this idea comes 57 times in the Old Testament. And I'll just look at some text here. Chapter 3, verse 1, Joshua the priest was standing before the Lord's messenger. 3, verse 3, he was standing before the messenger. 3, verse 4, the messenger said, 3 verse 5, the messenger was standing by. 3 verse 6, the Lord's messenger solemnly assured Joshua. So isn't this wonderful? Jesus stands in the court, (laughs) and he is there to intercede for Joshua. I can't help but think of Romans 8.33, where Paul says, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And that's exactly what the messenger is doing for Joshua and uh, placing upon him pure and clean vestments in verses 4 and 5. 
But that's not all. As I said in our introduction, we also then are introduced to the idea of this messenger who's the servant. He's then the shoot, right? The zamak. But also, Zechariah 3 calls the pre-incarnate Jesus the stone, the stone. Probably comes from Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done it, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So then what's, what's uh, even more fascinating is uh, that Satan is rebuked several times in chapter 3, verse 2, and it looks as though he's going to pick up his marbles and go home, and he does for a while, <laughs> but not forever, because all of this, see, prepares us for Satan's stand against the Savior on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, where Satan is again going to appear in court, right, with the Lord's messenger. But we know how all that finally turned out. After death, there's resurrection. And just as the temple, Zechariah's temple is rebuilt, so is Christ Jesus our Lord. It's just a, in 10 verses, it's just amazing that uh, Zechariah can fit so much in there that is just resplendent with gospel. And he ends, he ends in verse 10 of Zechariah chapter 3, that everyone's going to sit under his own vine and fig tree, which is an Old Testament way of saying, this is going to be an abundant life. Zechariah is uh, tapping into 1 Kings 4, verse 25. What's the abundance look like? It's right there in chapter 3, forgiveness of sins, the presence of Jesus to intercede for us, and a new garment, and the risen Christ to be with us forevermore. Why do you think that, that short verses that are so clearly pointing forward to our final vindication in God's courtroom, in Christ's death and resurrection, why don't you think they get more attention? Boy, I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't know a lot of people that spend a lot of time in Zechariah, right? I mean, the Book of the Twelve, the Minor Prophets don't get a lot of attention to begin with. And if you are going to study or preach or teach on Zechariah, it's probably going to be like the Palm Sunday text in chapter 9 or some of these other texts concerning Holy Week. But yeah, it is unfortunate that uh, we have this hidden jewel, don't we? That kind of brings us halfway through the book, except for chapters 7 and 8. How do they fit with that first half? Yeah, so the central message then of chapters 1 through 6 is going to be clarified in chapters 7 and 8. And the central message then is this, the construction of the temple per se is not the central message, but God's return and its ramifications for the world. In other words, if, you know, it's just rebuild the temple, then we don't have six chapters to Zechariah, right? But no, this is going to be a means of grace, and the grace is going to appear when Yahweh returns. And then this, as I said earlier, is going to be for the life of the world. And, and let me just uh, maybe take a look at this, uh, the ending uh, section. There are 10 oracles in chapter 8, and 10 being the complete number. But what we have at the end, the kind of the 10th oracle, 
is where Zechariah quotes the, the Lord of hosts saying, uh, people shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. All right. Uh, they'll seek the Lord in Jerusalem. And in those days, men from the nations, this is Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23, men, 10 men, okay, more than 10, right? 10 being symbolic here, since there's 10 oracles in chapter 8. 10 people from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Judahite, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Isn't that a wonderful way to kind of end the first eight chapters? God is with you in the temple through the means of grace. And we want to be a part of this restoration project. We're talking with Dr. Reed Lessing, author of the Concordia Commentary on Zechariah about the prophet Zechariah and the season of Lent. We'll get into chapters 9 through 14, the other half, next. You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. The characteristic mark of hope is that it always looks into the future. So says Herman Zasse in the March issue of the Lutheran Witness, which is all about hope and overcoming the quiet despair with which we are so in danger of being overcome in these days. To find out more about hope, what Christian hope looks like, and what it means to be a hopeful community, pick up your copy of the March issue of the Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org slash witness or witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Expert guests, expansive topics, extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Greetings in Christ. I'm Dr. Reed Lessing, Director of the Center for Biblical Studies at Concordia University in St. Paul, Minnesota. The center offers annual preaching workshops for Advent and Lent, seminars on a book of the Bible, and studies focused on biblical stewardship. We also showcase the best biblical scholarship in the LCMS by hosting three-day seminars each summer, featuring a guest scholar. Learn more at csp.edu slash Center for Biblical Studies. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. 
Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas will host an information session on Wednesday morning, April the 10th. For those interested in learning about their classical education offerings for preschool, pre-kindergarten, and K-12, learn more at flsplano.org, Faith Lutheran School, Plano, Texas, flsplano.org. We're talking about the prophet Zechariah and the Lenten season. Dr. Reed Lessing is our guest. So we've come to that halfway point and to Holy Week. What does the last half, chapters 9 through 14, have to do with Holy Week? Yeah, what we'd want to do is kind of get a a grid of sorts. And so the grid would be what text in chapters 9 through 14 are going to specifically, directly connect with Holy Week. So, of course, we've got the Palm Sunday text. Uh, Matthew 21 and John 12 are going to quote from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Holy Communion, 9-11. Of course, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians 11 are going to speak to that. The betrayal of Jesus by the 30 pieces of silver. Matthew 27 records that. Jesus deserted. This is chapter 13, verse 7. Strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. And Matthew and Mark are going to quote that. Jesus being pierced, right, in chapter 12, verse 10. Of course, we have the Roman spear thrust in John 19. And then we have right after that, okay, right after they will look upon me whom they've pierced, Zechariah 12, verse 10, there's this massive lament for the death of God in the rest of chapter 12 of Zechariah, which then leads to so beautifully into chapter 13, verse 1, where there is an, a fountain open for cleansing sin and impurity. And I can't help but think of this wonderful Lenten hymn that kind of puts together chapter 12, 10, the look upon me whom they appears, with this cleansing fountain. First stanza goes like this. Come to Calvary's holy mountain, sinners ruined by the fall. Here a pure and healing fountain flows for you, for me, for all in a full perpetual tide opened when our Savior died. It's almost as though this hymn is is, is the best commentary on Zechariah chapter 12, 10 through 13, 1. Amazing, isn't it? Talk about this. There's this little interlude of the two shepherds in, I believe it's in chapter 11. Take us into mm-hmm. that. Exactly. I could remember writing this commentary and getting to chapter 11 and really putting the project down for about four years. Seriously, I just thought, you know, I don't understand this at all. And then I was reminded of of Luther's second commentary on Zechariah, where 
he simply doesn't even comment on chapter 14. In his first commentary, Luther says, I don't know what's going on in chapter 14. His second one, his Latin one, he doesn't even mention chapter 14. So I thought, who am I? Here I am trying to figure out these very difficult chapters. And uh, Luther can't do it. Lessing certainly can't do it. So I give up. But, you know, it's just probably like the people stopped for 17 years during the temple. I thought, well, I better complete what I started. All of that is to say that chapter 11 of Zechariah would be one of the most contested, difficult chapters in the whole Old Testament to interpret. And in a nutshell, in a nutshell, uh, you have the evil shepherd who is a Satan-like figure, okay? And then you have the good shepherd who, ironically, uh, people in chapter 11 are going to go with the evil shepherd and they're going to detest, I mean, that's the word, detest the good shepherd and sell him for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, Really, there's no way to interpret chapter 11 in Zechariah without a pretty keen Christological hermeneutic, right? There's also the conclusion of chapter 14 where all of a sudden, after God has restored things, it's almost as though like all the cooking vessels in Jerusalem, all the utensils in Jerusalem are now temple vessels. They're sacred to the Lord. Talk about that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. So what a a wonderful gospel. And this is exactly what I meant by Zechariah at the beginning of our interview, being a priestly prophet. So a priest like Aaron or Eliezer or Ezekiel is really going to see things primarily through the temple and temple holiness. So the the small little holy of holies that was in the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple, which is where God is over the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, that that little piece of God's presence is in the restoration of all things. When Christ returns, that holiness is going to be expanded in universal ways. And so this is how Revelation chapter 21 speaks of the new Jerusalem. It's going to be a perfect cube. Well, that's just another way of saying what Zechariah is saying at the end of his book in chapter 14, that everything is going to be holy. Everything is going to be filled with joy and delight. Everything is going to exist for the glory of God because there he is, and the butchered lamb is always in the vision in the book of Revelation. So it's going to be an expanded holiness that will encompass the renewal of all things. So the temple then, essentially, the earth becomes God's dwelling place, not just a temple on earth, but the whole earth is holy to the Lord. That's a wonderful way to put it, a wonderful way, that the temple itself then expands to the point where the whole earth, the whole renewed creation is God's dwelling place. And there's any number of connections with what we're talking about here in Revelation chapter 21, where it says, like in verses three and four, God will dwell with his people. So in an even greater sense, what we're looking at is this holy of holies in tabernacle and temple. This is 
Eden 2.0. All right. You've, you've got the cherubim. And of course, in the end of Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, you have cherubim. So the cherubim in the Holy of Holies, not only the, the hammered gold cherubim, but the, the veil between the holy place and the Holy of Holies is also a veil that has within it sewn in features of cherubim. So we are to understand that the Holy of Holies is, is a little Garden of Eden. And when we get that idea, then we really see the, the grandeur and greatness of our God in terms of restoring Eden, really 2.0. What is the overall message of Zechariah's prophecy? I would say this, that throughout the first initial chapters, the eight night visions, Zechariah uses his phrase, and I lifted up my eyes and saw. So he encourages us also to lift up our eyes, right? And see, see what God is doing through his rebuilt temple and his rebuilt people called the church and see what he is doing through his means of grace, especially as we have accented in chapters three and four. It's a wonderful takeoff, right, of Psalm 121, verse one. I lifted up my eyes to the hills and from whence cometh my help? My help comes from Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. So we're called to live by faith, not by sight. And what an inspiring book to empower us, not by might or by power, but by the spirit to lift up our eyes and uh, see God's action for us in Christ Jesus. With about a minute here, you're director of the Center for Biblical Studies at Concordia University St. Paul, what is that center? Yeah, so thanks for asking that. We are now in our uh, fifth year, and what we have coming up this summer, we always uh, feature an LCMS biblical scholar. So we are hosting uh, Dr. Michael Mittendorf of Concordia University, Irvine. He's going to hold forth on the Book of Romans for us. If you're interested in that, any of our listeners, you can go to uh, the Fort Wayne Seminary website. They are cooperating and working with us on this, and they'll do all the registration. Other than highlighting a three-day seminar, I personally hold forth with the Advent and Lenten sermon series, and this, gosh, just in a couple of weeks on March 16th, I do an all-day seminar for lay people and pastors on a book of the Bible. This year I'm doing the book of Psalms. If anyone's interested in that, you don't have to come to St. Paul. We've got it online and on demand. You can just go to Center of Biblical Studies website. You'd see that and uh, several other opportunities to dig into the beauty and the wisdom, the power of God's Word. Find out more about the Center for Biblical Studies on the Talk on Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Dr. Reed Lessing is Professor of Theology and Ministry and Director of the Center for Biblical Studies at Concordia University, St. Paul, Minnesota, author of the Concordia Commentary on Zechariah. Dr. Lessing, thank you. Thank you, Todd. When we come back, it's part four of our series on classical Christian worship with Dr. Arthur Just, author of the book, Heaven on Earth, The Gifts of Christ in the Divine Service. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. 
Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Would you like to learn about the Reformation theology you hear on Issues Etc.? We'll send you a pamphlet of Luther's small catechism for free. It contains the biblical teachings on the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and Confession and Absolution. Order your free copy of Luther's Small Catechism today. Just send your name and mailing address to talkback at issuesetc.org. This is Pastor Tyler Arnold of Village Lutheran Church in Ladue, Missouri. The Saints at Village are proud to be an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. If you are in the St. Louis area, join us for the Divine Service at 8.15 or 10.45 a.m., Bible study and Sunday school at 9.30 a.m., as we receive Christ's promise of salvation and forgiveness through word and sacrament. You can find us at villagelutheranchurch.org. Village Lutheran in St. Louis welcomes you. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com.